turn to Psalm chapter 40. Each summer, the past seven years, we have been looking at the Psalms. And I was reminded this week when one of you shared uh, the playlist with me that you listened to at work, how personal and how intimate playlists are. And if you were to share with me the playlist, if we were to share our playlists with each other, it would tell us something about the hopes, not just our tastes for music, but our hopes, our fear. This playlist had country in it. I mean, come on. Our hopes, our fears, our, uh, our desires, our dreams, it was, it was, um, it was, it, it's incredibly personal. And so also your playlist is. And the Psalms are the playlist of Israel. The Psalms are the playlist of Jesus. And as such, they reveal the hopes and fears and joys and desires of Jesus himself. This was Jesus' playlist, kids. This is what Jesus listened to. This is what he fed his mind on. And so, we come to it every summer to feast our minds on the playlist of Jesus. In the fourth century, Athanasius reminded his people when he preached to them that the Psalms were the epitome of the whole of the scriptures. Basil of Caesarea said that the Psalms were uh, a compendium of all of theology. Martin Luther said that the Psalms are a little Bible in the midst of the big Bible. And more recently, Trimper, Trimper Longman has said that the Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect. They arouse our emotions. They direct our wills. They stimulate our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed. And I need to be changed and not simply informed. And I need to learn to drive my mind and my emotions and my desires and my will to God. And you know that you need to also. So if you're willing and able, would you listen to Psalm 40 as you stand and as I read it? Psalm 40 is a favorite of many. Please give your attention to God's Word. Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come 
In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O God, to deliver me. O God, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Like life, Psalm 40 is messy. Some psalms have a very clear genre with which preachers will use that genre in order to articulate the gospel to the people. But Psalm 40 is just a mess. <laughs> I mean, Psalm 40 opens the way an individual Thanksgiving psalm would. It speaks of past deliverance. And verse 4 has wisdom connections. And then verse 11 and following, it sounds much like an individual lament. I mean, this psalm is all over the place. It's highly emotional. And it's probably one of the reasons why Psalm 40 is so beloved by so many people. Anybody here ever been to a U2 concert? And, okay, I see a couple of hands, right? Some of you are ashamed to say you've been to a U2 concert. You were here at Bono. Like, for years, U2 would end their concert singing a song they called 40. And the entire crowd would just sing to the top of their lungs, how long to sing this song? I mean, just Google U2 and 40 and you can watch this play out. And it was just this amazing yearning of the crowd, longing, how long as Bono sings the words of Psalm 40 over the people. And the psalm is beloved because in its highly emotional rhythm and cadence reminds me of our congregation because many of us this summer have competing experiences simultaneously. 
the excitement of a new child on the way and the helplessness when our children cry late into the night. Kids, the joy of a new video game and the frustration when mom and dad ask us to wait to play it. The, new, the good news of a report from the doctor and yet the despair as a family member struggles with an illness. The joy of a new job with good health insurance and the sense of being overwhelmed with financial demands. The joy of a church community for those of you who are looking for church and yet the loneliness at home when our spouse travels for work. The excitement of vacation with family and yet the frustration when unrealistic expectations greet us and the behavior of family members and they frustrate us by their behavior. The, solitary, uh, the solidarity you feel with a close friend and the confusion that you feel when that relationship grows tense. The security that we have in Jesus and yet the insecurity you feel about the way God made you. And on and on and on and on. I, we could stand up together and we could talk about the dissonance in our experience, even this summer, and the emotion. We try to maintain our sanity without looking to God. And we grow even more confused. But this psalm teaches us that waiting for the Lord paves the way for transformation. We try to maintain sanity without looking to God, but we grow even more confused. But Psalm 40 teaches us that waiting for the Lord paves the way for real transformation. Verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. When we hear the word waiting, we might think of waiting in line. Sociologists tell us that the average human being spends six years waiting in line and five months of those are spent at stoplights waiting for the light to turn green. But this, of course, is not the kind of waiting that David is talking about. He is not talking about the kind of waiting in line at Reese's or Sprouts for the cashier to check us out. No, David is talking about the kind of waiting you feel when you are bleeding to death on the operating table and you are waiting for the surgeon to get there. It's a desperate kind of waiting. It's a watchful waiting. Verse 1 literally in Hebrew reads, I waited, waited for the Lord. I waited and waited and waited for God. And the ESV and the NIV's translation is perhaps a little too placid. I waited patiently for the Lord. It sounds so trite, but really what the author is saying is, David is saying, I waited and waited and waited for God to show up. To wait means to look and hope for God to act. That's what waiting means in Scripture. It is an act of waiting. It means to look in hope for God to act. This is what Isaiah prophesied to Judah when he said, uh, No ear has perceived, no one has heard, no eye has seen, a God like you who what? Who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. 
Jonathan Edwards says that it is that God's, God glorifies himself in his movement toward his people and acting on their behalf. And that is what distinguishes the triune God from all other gods and all other religions. That our God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. He initiates. Psalm 27, 14. We are commanded to wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord and be strong. And let your hearts take courage and wait for the Lord. Watchful waiting of the Lord is waiting with hope. Psalm 33. We wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice because we trust in his holy name. May your steadfast love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we hope in you. Hope and waiting are equated in Psalm 33. To wait means to look in hope for God to act. Hope is an expectation or a desire or a longing for a certain thing to happen. And we bank our happy future on that which holds our hopes. Question. What are you banking your happy future on right now? Like do a little diagnostic spiritual assessment. Waiting in scripture means that we are banking our hope in God's promises for our happy future ultimately. And when he says we wait in hope, he says the psalmist is waiting and waiting and waiting in hope. It is a desperate looking to God for help. It reminds me, years ago, some of you may have, have been there. We went to a birthday party of, of, of a member of the church and it was down in Bigsby and we, we, a lot of us went down there to celebrate the birthday party for their child and there was a pool there and, and my kids, my older two kids were, were fairly young and Annie... My daughter fell into the pool and, you, and, and she fell into the pool and she looked up in the pool and before she could even look up for dad, I was in the water holding her up and several others of you jumped in the water with me. I mean, we didn't even think twice. We, we just jumped. Cell phones, keys, everything. We just jumped in there. And that's what the psalmist, he's saying, I waited and waited and waited and I looked. And you know what? Some of you are waiting and waiting and waiting and looking. And you know what? God has acted. And you're looking for him. You can't find him anywhere. It's because he is holding you up. He is sustaining you. And he has already acted long before you even recognize that he is moving. He, he is supporting you. And he is holding you up. And yet, there are two types of unbelief in believers. In my heart and in yours. And, and I, need an, I need an example. Who can I choose? Um... So, like one of us is like we're seeking the things of God. Um, we would say that we're a Christian, but we haven't really allowed the gospel to inform, to, to be the motive of the entirety of our life. We've heard the story of redemption, but the gospel kind of remains an intellectual exercise. We know theology, but in the midst of these existential crises, we fail to apply the gospel 
And we don't apply it at the level of the heart. And we've overemphasized, without thinking about it, the intellectual aspects of the gospel. We, we, we know these things. But the reason we know that we haven't applied them to the level of the heart is because when you experience stress, you handle that stress the exact same way you did before you became a Christian. Like there's no difference of how you, your operating system runs. I mean, I know you say you're a Christian and I know you go to church, but you have an intellectual faith and you've not yet leaned upon the gospel. And if things get really bad, then you will finally turn to God. And the gospel is kind of like a net that's beneath the tightrope walker. Oh, it's important. But you don't really use it unless you fall. And that is an unbelief. There's another kind of, of Christian. Who could I use this as an example of? Uh, let's say that, let's say that um, I'll be in it with you. We might, we might know our Bibles very well. And when we get angry or uh, we, we, a, a relative on a vacation does something to us and we just want to just lash out, we, we know the Bible. So we go to Psalm 141 and we say, oh Lord, let not my heart be drawn to what is evil. Set a door over my lips. And we claim that verse and we apply it. And we deal with the anger by obeying what the Bible says. And that's, that's not bad. That's, that's, that's great. Except that's the way that you believe you commend yourself to God. And you're pretty straight-laced. And you're very calculated about your behavior. And subtly, you begin to use the Bible as a how-to manual to protect yourself from God. And that, too, is a kind of unbelief that is cancerous in the church in our city. And it destroys you because you run and run and run and run and run to obey God, but you never really rest on His righteousness. You're constantly doing it out of your own self-effort. You believe that God loves you more as you walk in obedience to Him. And oh, your joy increases as you walk in obedience to Him, no doubt. But it only increases because you have rested first on the righteousness of Jesus. As John Bunyan wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. And for those of you who are the doctrinal, intellectual ones, and for those of you who are the moral and obedient ones, heads up, it is possible for you to lose the gospel because in your waiting and waiting and waiting, you rely on your own self-effort. And the cognitive road and the moral road both can lead you away from Jesus. And there are some of you who are not yet Christians, and you know this in your own life too. You're tired because you've tried the intellectual road, and you've, you've tried the moral road, and you've found it wanting. It's exhausting. And maybe now you're on the cynic's road, or you're on the skeptic's road, or you're on the protesters road or you're on the justice seekers road or you're on the still trying to figure it out road whatever road you're on 
welcome. The gospel's appeal is found in our experience of helplessness. And sometimes we feel that helplessness in our depression. Sometimes we feel that helplessness in our shame. Sometimes we feel that helplessness in our cognitive dissonance. But you know you're there because you can't seem to be able to pull yourself up out of the muck and the mire. And friends, these are the moments when you see how God enters into your pain in the person of Jesus. That is where David found himself in verse 1. He knows and he confesses that only God can help him. And he trusts this to be true. And he calls out for himself. Because beneath his knowledge and his obedience is a trust in someone else. I want us to know the doctrine of Scripture really well. Because it shapes our worldview of how we understand everything about life. And I want us to be people who love the beauty of His holiness, as we talked about earlier in the service. But we are those people because first we become people who rest on the grace of Christ. Because it is Jesus who accomplished for us everything that we needed for salvation. You do not commend yourself to God by your behavior. In fact, if you try to commend yourself to God by your behavior, you will find yourself more and more isolated from his love and grace because you are still trying to earn it. And as you come to the supper this morning, would you lay down your deadly doings down at Jesus' feet and come to him and him alone? Gloriously complete because Jesus has made you complete. When uh, St. Augustine in the 5th century was preaching this text in Hippo, he said, Let our God be our hope. He who made all things is better than all things. And he who made beautiful things is more beautiful than all of them. He who made all that is strong is himself stronger. And he who made all greatness is greater than any. Whatever you have loved, he will be that for you. Learn to love the creator in the creature, the maker in what is made. Do not let something he made so captivate you that you lose him. By whom you were made yourself. Blessed is the one, then he quotes Psalm 40 verse 4, whose hope is in the Lord, who has no regard for empty things and for lying foolishness. Pull the 5th century into the 21st century. And if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, I just want to say that the tensions that you feel in your heart are tensions that many Christians still feel in their hearts because we are not better people. Christians aren't better people. That's why some of you haven't been to church in a long time because you're frustrated by the hypocrisy of Christians. We get it. We are not better people. We are just people who are utterly dependent upon grace. And would you join us, please? Would you find that resting in the finished work of Jesus is the only way to find what you are so longing for? I know you're waiting. Jesus does too. And he's there to meet you in that waiting. Notice that the psalm, if you have the psalm open, notice the psalm doesn't end at verse 11, does it? What, what verse does it go down to? Look in your Bibles and see. What, what's the last verse? 17. It doesn't end at verse 11, which is interesting to me because the same sense of dependence 
with which God justified David by his faith at his conversion is the same kind of dependence that will sanctify David. Notice it at verse, verse 10, it says, I have not hidden your deliverance from my heart. I have told, I have spoken of. And then verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain. You will, you will not. You... And then verse 12, he immediately starts talking in the present tense. Like, I've been saved, great, but evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. This is the language of a Christian crying out for continued grace in their life. And notice that David wants to share what he's experienced with others. You know, verses 9 and 10, he says, I have told of the glad news of the deliverance. Like, even in my brokenness, I'm, I'm proclaiming the good news to the great congregation. I'm not afraid to talk about how I couldn't deliver myself, even though he's the king. I was delivered. The security that God provides him allows him to be fiercely honest about his own continual struggle with sin. And friends, the same act of dependence that you experienced when you became a Christian, it is the same that you demonstrate as you grow in Christ. Faith and repentance, faith and repentance. Deepening joy, he gives you a larger volume to enjoy the good gifts that he's provided to you. But verses 12 and onward should also be your prayer. You should continue to cry out to him. This is our playlist. This is this is the, the way that we sing our prayers to King Jesus. And when the author of Hebrews was looking for a way to describe the deliverance when he was preaching his sermon in Hebrews, when he gets to chapter 10, he's trying to think of a way, how do I, how do I communicate the depth of the riches that we have in the greater Moses and the greater David in the person of Jesus. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, all the Old Testament sacrifices, they were just a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. You're dancing with the shadows until you begin to place your faith in Jesus. And then he says, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the book of the scroll. A body you have prepared for me, the author of Hebrews writes. That's another Hebrew paraphrase of what he says in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, you have given me an open ear. And literally in Hebrew it says, ears you have dug for me, which is a euphemism for you have fashioned for me a body. Which is why the author of Hebrews, you think he misquotes the psalm. No, he, he's just paraphrasing what this verse means in Hebrew. You fashioned a body for me. As if the father were to say, hey, you've seen the shadows. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And I want you again to come back to Jesus. Because at the fullness of time, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are made under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir of God. I love verse 6. I love verse 6. It's like you have given me an open ear. Like you have fashioned for us a body and a person of Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice for us. And in his fashioning of Jesus, he uses this metaphor of like digging out ears in the clay to make the body of Jesus. And in that, when we hear that good news, he opens our ears. So that you will stop running to all those things that you're putting your deepest delight and you'll come back again to Jesus and his righteousness. And you know what that does for you? Man, it humbles us. Look at, look at verse 17. I am poor and needy. Not, I was poor and needy. Not before I was a Christian, I was this, 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 and this. I was a great sinner before I was a Christian. No, I am poor and needy. I'm still a sinner. If you've been to the new members class in our church, you know how we talk about Paul's description of himself. He says that he was a greater sinner after he had the experience on the road to Damascus because he knows his heart more. I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. God is thinking of me. God is thinking of you. That's not pie in the sky by and by. He is this very moment thinking of your anxieties. And he is saying to you, give them to me. Give them to me. Come all ye who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I know you're tired. Give them to me. Come to the Lord's table at Trinity in just a minute and give them to me. Lay them down, down at my feet, and trust in me and me alone, gloriously complete. God knows you're a mess. Nothing in our hands we bring. And the Lord says to us, I'm going to make something out of you. And you can't do it. You haven't got what it takes. But wait for me, and I will provide. Guys, if you think waiting is like ladies' stuff, like, ah, this is so emotional and waiting, waiting, waiting. It takes the most strength in your life to wait for the Lord. And you know this if you've been there. What does it look like? Well, verses 1 to 10 tells us what it looks like. And what does it feel like? Verses 11 to 17 tells us what it feels like. What it looks like is it looks like we are waiting and that we are singing our hope. Verse 3. And in our waiting, actually, may be the most powerful form of evangelism you have. Not your wise words. It may be your faithful waiting as people, neighbors, family, watch you wait. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord because you are waiting with integrity. It creates a sense of wonder in you. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. You have multiplied your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. David is caught up in wonder. Not just your witness, but you wander. You glorify the Lord and seeing how beautiful he is in your waiting. He's trying to help your top 
slow down so that you can wait in his presence. He changes your will. Verses 6 to 8. Behold, I have come in the scroll that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. In waiting, the Lord reshapes our will so that we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Maybe you've waited so long because the Lord is still waiting for you to pray that. And what does it feel like? Verses 11 to 17. It feels like confidence. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Listen to the confidence. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. This is confidence in the Lord's promise. It feels like you've, got, you've gained confidence because the promises of God are driving your affections. And that leads to you to cry out. Verses 13 to 15. You cry. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. The more confident you are, the louder your cries and your prayers are going to be. Because you know you have access to God. And then what contrast it provides. Verses 16 and 17. May all who seek you, who turn their eyes from the ways of the world and they seek you, may they rejoice and may they be glad in you. May they say, great is the Lord. And what does that greatness produce in us? Not power, but humility. For I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. And that is enough. So brothers and sisters, we try to maintain our sanity without looking to God. But we grow even more confused. And Psalm 40 reminds us that waiting for the Lord paves the way for transformation. Looking to Jesus for our deliverance, which he accomplished on his cross. Oh Lord, do not delay. Would that you watch for him with watchful waiting, Trinity. Would that you be able to confess your areas where you are impatient to your community groups, to your spouse, to your family, to your friends, and say, would you pray for me in this area because I am incredibly impatient. I don't want to wait. Would that you allow your doctrine and your obedience to deepen your faith because you first rest in faith upon what Jesus has accomplished for you. Rooted in Jesus, who is our ultimate deliverer, and for him we wait. What an interesting character of Christ, waiting. And may we find ourselves marked out as a community because we are able to look to him to act in hope. And may that make us countercultural and beautiful. Because, friends, he will come again to make everything new. And what he has begun in you, he is faithful to bring it to completion. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.